How you doing, everyone? Thank you for tuning into this episode of Ready to Record from Blue Girl Studios. My name is Daniel, the D3 Cohen. I am your host, and I am speaking to you from Blue Girl Productions' worldwide headquarters and studios here in my garage. I'm a 19-year-old aspiring musician, engineer, and producer, and like many of you, I make music in my own home studio. You know, as people like Billie Eilish and Phineas have shown the world, that can be accomplished by young artists and producers working from home. This show is for people who love music and love to hear about how it's made. There will be cool stories and interesting insights for fans and pros of every kind. Hopefully, though, this show will be especially helpful for everyone like me working in home studios. Some of today's biggest hitmakers work from home, so maybe we can help one of you realize your big dreams. In our last episode, I had the great pleasure of talking to a great buddy of mine, Doug Doglips Grion. We talked about everything from his history as a musician and an engineer, all the way to his current setup as a studio owner in Rye, New York, and his work in video, including his series Starman. On today's episode, I am going to have a lot of fun. Today, I'm interviewing legendary engineer Christina Picari. Christina Picari has one of the most interesting careers in music recording. She's a staff engineer at Capitol Studios, a two-time Grammy Award winner, and has made more albums than most people have listened to. The other really interesting thing about Christina is she really kind of just keeps her head down and does her work and really doesn't talk about it very much. So. Having her on as a guest is a real pleasure, privilege, and frankly, it's a real honor. Today, we talked about everything from how she started in recording to her favorite moments. There are a lot of really interesting stories and some cool insights and some fun for some gear sluts, too. So I'm going to shut up, and without further ado, here's my interview with Christina Picari. Miss Christina Picari, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm honored. I, I've listened to a few of the podcasts, and they're great. I've uh, I've enjoyed them, so um, I feel honored to be a guest. I don't do a lot of interviews. You know, I I've had a very fortunate career, but I don't uh, stand out and brag about it. So well, it's. Uh... For that very reason, it's a it's a privilege to have you on. I do want to jump right in here. You have a long discography, and almost every record is very, very different from each other. You've done Dwight Yoakam, you've done jazz records, you've done uh, Oingo Boingo, John Mayer, lots of genres and, and albums. So my first question to you is, uh, what got you started, and what, what sort of keeps you interested in in different music? Well, that's a great question. I started playing in bands in the Bay Area 
in high school and uh, went through several phases of first folk and bluegrass, Bob Dylan cops to, you know, some scrugs, some flattened scrug stuff to uh, hitting the Mabue Gardens up, following the path of the Ramones in a way. I've, I've been fortunate. It's, it, it's an interesting take because as I've aged and my musical tastes are still there, but have changed my, I was able to flow with a clientele to go with my growth as well. So I did start out doing a lot of pop and rock stuff. And that slowly moved into rap and uh, early rap like Hammer and Easy Moby and, you know, rapping is fundamental and stuff like that. So, mm-hmm. but then I wanted to stretch it out a little more and being a staff mixer at Capitol, the history of jazz there was tremendous. Sure. And I started branching out into a, a little more of that and really awakening my musical tastes and uh, experience. So that's what really um, that's what really started pushing me into other directions. And then I started getting into scoring and classical music and doing. So I have, you know, been able to jump through a lot of genres. And, and have a great understanding for it. It's been, um, I've been lucky in that sense. I, <laughs> one of the things that made me do it, that's funny you, you say is, when I was in my 20s or early 30s, I saw a lot of engineers, a generation or you know, 10 to 15 years older than me trying to hang into the previous generation they were in doing rock records and now they had no hair and beer bellies and were still wearing tight leather and trying to do this whole eighties thing. It was pretty right. funny. And I said, I don't want to do that. You know, I want to be, uh, you know, I want to grow with this in my life and I want to bring these new experiences, you know, to be involved with them. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so anyway, yeah, that's a, uh, plus a lot of stuff at capital capitals draw changed over the years, you know, the um the actual label studio thing kind of died in the 70s and i was part of a new team brought in in the early 80s to kind of revamp the studio and uh with fresh blood and so yeah i went through my rock thing older engineers got sick or retired so all of a sudden i had to learn how to do the jazz thing which taught me to read like crazy and you know I did a super sax record called Stone Bird. And uh, it, it was pretty funny. I mean, basically they called the music for lack of a better term, fly ship, because it was more notes on the page than I'd ever seen in my life. But by the end of the record, I was able to read better than the producer. So it really, uh, those things inspired me to really improve my skills. Well, it's just, interesting to me because I am fortunate to be in a sort of musical center here in the Bay Area. So it's always interesting to find people who do so much different music and are able to do an MC Hammer record and then turn around and do the CalArts jazz album. Yeah, no, it's that's sort of the beautiful thing about music too, is it is one big family. And when you're on a good gut level or a street level with creative people, I think you see there's a lot more behind them than what they may appear uh, or what what may be their gig 
there's a, a lot of deeper stuff going on that uh, you're not aware of until you really get to hang with them. You know, and that, that's right. the other beautiful thing about engineering or producing is you really do get to hang with people. And uh, it's, it's funny, last night, one of my favorite records I ever was involved in was with J.J. Kale, and it's called Travelogue. And I finally found it on <laughs> Apple Music. But uh, right away, J.J. gave me more rope than anybody. I was probably 24, 25. And right away, he was like, well, tell me what you think. What do we need to do? And uh, he gave me all the influence or the chance to influence in the world, which was amazing. And having that relationship with artists where the trust factor is so strong and the respect factor, even at that age, was a, a pretty, <laughs> just a, a pretty amazing feeling. There, there's nothing like working with artists and being able to have that connection with them. It's, it's especially fun when you as the engineer are also a musician, you can think about it from a musical standpoint and you're able to just immerse yourself into the music and be able to, like your friend Lenny Spence said, be another member of the band. Absolutely true. You know, I, when you really climb inside with somebody, you know, they respect it, they get it. And uh, some of my best mentors in the engineering world, you know, Al Schmidt or Armin Steiner or, Danny Wallen and scoring or stuff, they give you as much rope as you can take. Sure. Just to help you learn. And then when you trap yourself, they'll tighten the knot a little bit. But right. it's those experiences that um harder and harder to find for young engineers. I realize that. And the whole game has changed, you know. But uh it um really helped me grow and really taught me so much. Because you learn by your mistakes. You learn by your success. And I think you learn a lot more from your failures, you know, or maybe not failure, but mistakes. Maybe that's what I should say. Well, I mean, the saying is necessity is the mother of invention. Uh, so I, I, I would like to think mistakes breed our best breakthroughs. Right. It's sort of the definition of jazz. <laughs> well, <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's funny. I've, I was in a big band as a younger kid, and um, you saw so many different people come in and out, um, especially, you know, when it when it's a youth orchestra, and uh, and you could definitely tell the people that were interested in doing it and learning from their mistakes, and the people that were going through the motions, essentially. Absolutely, and there there's some of that in the studio musician routine. I've got probably close to a thousand friends who are orchestral studio musicians and some are living for it every note and others it's just going through the motion. Right. You know, so that, that tends to follow in adult life and career path as well. But I, I totally get, you know, what you're saying with that. And what did you play? I'm curious. Actually. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit of a, I'm a, yeah. In the uh, every band, I was a bit of a show off. I, I I'm afraid. I uh, I started out as as second chair drummer, and then the this first chair drummer left, and I moved to first chair, and then eventually we got more drummers, and I became a piano player for a short time, and then I was uh, strapped uh, to an upright bass and and told to play all the Mangus. 
until until oh my someone, gosh, <laughs> until until someone else could come and play all the mangas, and then I was uh, thrown back uh, on drums and percussion and asked to cop all the Blakey. It was very funny. I was I was kind of this. Um, I, I, w- I was the uh, I was the Joker card. I could be put in in place for for anything if they needed me. So whatever whatever Mr. I was rhythm. asked to do, I I did. <laughs> I, I stuck great. I stuck to the rhythm section though. I I I don't play the wind instruments not yet. Anyway, we'll see we'll see what happens. Yeah, yeah. you got a lot of time. Now that's those are big hoops to jump through too. It's impressive because going from drums to bass and I've hung out with some amazing rhythm section people in jazz, you know, Chuck Berghofer and Charlie Hayden and mm. Chuck DeMonico and the stories and, you know, the late night <laughs> conversations we've had about how to approach it and who taught you this. And, you know, it's, it's been amazing. I, um, there's a depth to it, you know, that is, uh, whew, even blows my mind away, you know, not that I'm at any sort of level at, at those people I mentioned, but uh, scary, amazing, you know, I have to, and some people, it's just so easy for them to make amazing things happen. I know. And, uh, and one thing I, one person I can think of is, uh, who, you know, I'm, I'm in a band and my, my drummer is a, is a huge fan of uh, Tony Williams as, as am I. Wow. Um, and you did a Tony Williams record. Um, I did work on one Tony Williams record. Dave Cole was given it as lead engineer and I was asked to assist on it. And uh, it was brilliant. You know, Mulgrew played piano on it, who I've met on several other projects over, over time. But yeah, it was, um, again, that was an enlightening moment for me because it opened another door. And, uh, you know, I saw a whole nother side of jazz I had not been exposed to at that point. Sure. But I've had a, a lot of those great things happen later, later on with some great people. And uh, not that those people weren't great. I don't <laughs> mean to say it like that. But yeah, that's the one thing I sort of in my life philosophy. I want to come away every day with learning something tremendous, something new whether it's a recording technique, a microphone, a musical style, you know, like Kale, the one thing he kind of taught me, JJ Kale was about groove, about finding this simple country groove thing, which a lot of those guys from Tulsa had, you know, Keltner and Drummond and just an amazing section, you know, Leon Russell, you know, was from there just. Right. Some amazing people came out. Mike Finnegan, my God, I forgot to be one of the greatest B3 players of all time. Mm. And um, so, yeah, it was, um, It that's kind of the one thing I like to pick out every day is something new. You know, what did I get out of this today? What advanced me? What helped me see it that way? Right. Now, in that in that vein, I'm I'm curious because you've done so many different genres and so many different albums over your career. When you when you come out of Tony Williams and you jump into say a Glenn Frey album, um, right? Do you do you use any of those takeaways you get from the jazz side to to go into? Uh, 
something a little different or or do you do you have a couple of different methods of of technique and recording and thought process well i i think you need in this world to be a chameleon on a lot of levels sure and to be able to relate to people at that level or bring your knowledge of them and your shared experience with their shared experiences that would be different with tony williams or with Achilles Smith and it would be from MC Hammer or, you know, John Mayer or anybody. And luckily, I'm, I think that's, if I want to call it a gift or luck, you know, being able to, to work with people on their level is, is really important and share whatever helps that translation happen, so to speak. So, but you're right, it is, it is a, a mindset sometimes to jump from Tony Williams to Dwight Yoakam or, to, <laughs> you know, something like that. Sure. But I, I, I love it all, you know, and I really do, like I told you, I love coming away with something new every day. You know, just, wow, that was a great lick. Wow, how are you playing that? Wow, what a sound. What are you doing in your amp to do that? Uh, what if I bring this technique that I used on this record and bring it over here. Let's see how that works for you. Mm -hmm. You know, one thing I noticed in Lenise's interview, which I totally agree with is um, one of the most important things to do is to sense a comfort factor with people. Right. And to see, okay, they're nervous. Their shoulders are up above their neck. What can I do to relax this situation? Is it a joke? Is it a little environmental change? As far as the recording environment, is it, what What can I do here to bring them into a state where they're not thinking about where they are anymore? Right. And that was truly an, an issue. Being at Capitol Studios, it's one of the coveted recording havens of the world. <laughs> yes. And, and finding <laughs> that way to bring people around and not let them think of where they are. I mean, I've done everything from build a living room inside the studio, literally with couches and tables and lamps to, so you could just pretend you were in your living room and play to, you know, really trying to realize what, what it is that's gonna make this person find what they need, you know, and, uh, and find what they want is really maybe the better way to say that. Sure. And uh, so, yeah, those, all those little things, you know, a lot of times since I was on bigger projects, some of the production decisions were done ahead of time. Not all, but finding a way to interface with the artist and the producer as far as achieving that. I mean, some things are obvious, you know, you want everybody to have, you know, to be able to see each other, you know, their mm -hmm. sight line has to be perfect. As you know, as a player, a nod is worth a lot more than you think. Oh, a nod far... and a and a and a raise of the eyebrow is is everything. Exactly. For sure. People who are great musicians know where they're going, and mm -hmm. you know, but that's because they played together for a long time or whatever. And it it amazes me sometimes that when sessions are put together with people who don't necessarily know each other how that is still happening. Mm -hmm. You know, I know where this is going. I know what you're going to do. I know what's going to happen. 
you know, I, I saw, you know, and so those things I really, I feel it's really important in recording people to really achieve the best situation for them to relate to each other. And a lot of times that helps take stress off too. Right. I'm not so much worried about having everything isolated and, you know, in a box. I like that sound. I, I like recording perfection, but if that's not what's going to work, let's just make all this leakage work for us. And uh, let's all be in the room together. Let's all do whatever it takes to, you know, find that magic. And I think that's that's a great point. You know, there will always be that balance between having your musicians in separate rooms or perfect isolation, having everything so that you can bring them together on the console, pull the faders up and have that harmony or uh, what's better perhaps for the artist and having them just all in a room playing together. Absolutely. Because sometimes that feeling that comes from us playing in garages as kids and in school, really, it translates in the studio. So you really having a little bit of insight on that and trying to stay one step ahead, which I've seen as an engineer. I see an accident coming here. How am I going to prevent that? I see a problem here. What can I do to make this better? Oh, his head, oh, this, his headphones. Oh, well, no, he can't see this. Oh, no, he's not happy with the sound here. Let's try over here. Mm. You know, those are uh, some of the most important uh, lessons. It's not always about perfection, <laughs> even though I think Pro Duel is kind of leans us to do that you know right? thank you elastic time <laughs> yeah and and all these all these tools and tuning and everything but it, it's funny it reminds me of a, a lot of time in the early days either doing vocals or guitar solos on 24 track or whatever you know you may have not known the part going in or had a clue but by the end of the day and hundreds if not a thousand punches later you had it memorized Right. I, I could I could mention several artists that I worked forever on building this vocal in the analog days. And when I saw them do it live six months, a year later, they sang it, sang it exactly as the comp was. Mm -hmm. You know, they learned it that way. And that's some. Um, so that's an interesting thing, too. Nowadays, there have been instances, I would say, where it's you got what you need. Great. I'm off to the mall. Fix it. Bye. You know, <laughs> don't want that. Right. But uh, it it's available to some people and they take advantage of that. And, you know, that's a little bit of a shame. But also it's changed so much. You know, it, there used to be a lot of exploration time in the studio to find these things. And that really is not available to most artists anymore. Right. Well, I think there's a push and pull to that, of course. You know, it nowadays, and, and I talked about this with Lanise, of course, the, the, the budgets are a lot smaller when you're in studio. But then again, something that I had brought up at some point is that you you sort of get that exploration back if you're doing what uh, we're doing uh, right here, right now, which is our sitting in our homes and uh, and, and recording. In my case, I'm, I'm very glad you brought up uh, bands playing in a garage because I built my studio out of my garage as as you should have I'm I'm glad to hear that <laughs> well you know I I'm I'm a big fan of uh of the uh big pink basement tapes all the all the Bob Dylan and, and band demos oh so sure I'm, 
Sure. So I, I, I strive to achieve uh, the sound of the basement of Big Pink, albeit without without the great pink facade uh, at the front of my house. <laughs> that's so funny. No, it's important, you know, and that is the one luxury that the technology change has brought is that everyone, you know, can get quality recording at home if they've had enough time to figure out how to do it or learned or gone to school now, or I'm sure a million things are on YouTube that tell you how to do this and that and get you to like 80, 90% till you figure it out. And, uh, and that does give you the luxury of time. The, right. the downside for me, maybe not with your garage scene, but is it's individualized a lot of people and they don't yes. play together anymore. Yes. And it may be great, but there's another thing to me that happened when people, like I was saying, that nod, the raise of the eyebrow, as you said, when people are together, the energy comes up, you know, and uh, sort of like when you go out on, on stage or when you play with somebody that's better than you, it brings you up. It, it brings your notch up. And uh, that's the one thing that I, I think we are lacking in this world. Like I'm not, and this is pre-COVID, of course, when I speak about this. But there's been a real tendency in Los Angeles to say, hey, I did this. I'll send you the file. I shouldn't just say Los Angeles. It's all over. And uh, you put your thing on and let's go. And it's great. But I've got to wonder in my heart and my mind what would happen if they were next to each other, sitting right. next to each other. And uh, so th those things are a little missing. I, I like Lenise said, uh, I'll go, you know, doing a vocal in the control room sometime when you have this communication, because it is true. I've sat on the other side of the glass and all of a sudden people are talking and you're like, what the fuck is going on here? You know, what are they saying? Sure. You know, I, I always jam the talk back down uh, when, as soon as I stop rolling one way or the other, because you know, it's important to keep people involved and I don't want any isolated feelings, you know. <laughs> of course, there's been a few fights in the studio too I've seen over the years and had a job, <laughs> but uh, it's, it's important. And I, when you sit on the other side, which is a great lesson, you, uh, you realize that. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting that you bring that up because something that I've kind of learned to do when I'm doing engineering, if I have an intimate knowledge of what we're recording, what I'll end up doing is I'll quit looking at the screen and I'll instead, you know, give them that, that raised eyebrow or the nod. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. Or, or if I have to use my hand to count them in and, and go one, two, three, four with my hand, I, I'll, I'll make sure I do that. Absolutely. That's the immersion that we're, we were speaking mm -hmm. of. You know, it, it's it's so important, and 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 people relate to that. You know, I, I you inspire people when you do yes. these type of things. Whether it's dancing in the control room, even though I'm a terrible dancer, <laughs> same or here. Whatever, getting up and yeah, you know, do, creating those um those feelings and those emotion and being involved really drives other people's spirit. That's one thing I really uh, truly believe. You know, immersing yourself in the project is a, a number one concern. Exactly. Now, I talked about this a little bit with both Lenise and another guest, John O'Manson, as well as another guest, photographer Steve Eichner. Any recorded medium, 
um, there was the uh, move from analog to digital. And I know you're a big fan of high-res 96K plus uh, high-resolution audio, digital audio. But I'm, I'm curious. I've asked... Uh, I asked Lenise sort of this question as well as Jono and and um, Steve. Is do you think we've lost anything from the analog days? Oh, absolutely. Look, I owned JJ Cale's old studio for quite a while. Had a two inch sixteen track Beautiful. <laughs> Ampex machine, and uh, I I'd say yeah. There's a convenience that comes today with digital recording and, uh, but it comes with a price. It's funny you mentioned high res. Actually, my preferred sample rate is 882, 2482 or 32882, because the character to me sonically reminds mm. me of tape, you know? And uh, there's, I am convinced there's something in the conversion factor that happened way back when 44.1 was the standard that, multiplies down right or multiplies upright with the converters right and uh it doesn't when i first heard 192 i was like wow this is painful <laughs> oh my god you know it was on an it was on a ron isley record we were cutting it i actually alan sides asked me to assist him on it uh and Baccarat was playing piano it was an orchestra it was a lot of fun but he wanted to go 192, and it was in the infancy, infancy, pardon, of 192 recording. And when I heard it go through those converters, I was like, "Oh my God, this doesn't sound like Studio A. This is this is painful," you know. Um, so there there is a trade-off with that, but the convenience thing, being able to open up a session pick up where you left off if you're mixing in the box, not having to load reels of tape, not having to deal with the fact that as time went on, tape became real inconsistent as a medium as far as what you put in and what you got back. Right. You know, there started to be some real variances in because it was being manufactured less than that meant plants were closing, sort mm -hmm. of like vinyl so right now, you know, and so the quality was not there because it wasn't being manufactured in a quantity that you could choose from. And, uh, you know, that's a whole nother, <laughs> a whole nother argument, but yeah, I am, I am a fan, um, excuse me, of 88-2-24-32 and making that happen. If I'm going to do that, I, if a project will allow it and afford it, we'll mix the half inch simultaneously and then maybe bounce that back up into Pro Tools for mastering and let the mastering engineer choose. I also do a lot of pre-mastering when I'm mixing mm -hmm. in the box. And I send them, I prefer to have someone else master because when possible, I like another set of ears on it and just someone I'm comfortable with, you know, I can go in the room with and say, hey, no, let's, um, I know the room, let's, um, or I don't know the room, but let's, um, let's make it sound. And here's what I sent right. the client. You know, I've got my own little mastering chain on, you know, some manly stuff going on, an L2 or whatever. And, you know, I mastered. So anyway, here's what they liked. Here's what we need to improve on. And uh, so I, I have found that to be a very handy way as well to create that, um, you know, and get that feedback going. But yeah, I do. Uh, 
at that point, if I have the chances of going analog these days are pretty rare, you know, but uh, it's, <laughs> I even know a very famous project that recorded in Pro Tools and then bounced it to 24 track and back into Pro Tools, you know, to be mixed. And I was like, well, <laughs> okay, but you know, what what's really going on here? Do you want just the drums in there? Do you, drums and bass, but what about this and that? And do you really feel you're getting the quality and the dynamics there nowadays? And, you know, it's a, each, each project finds its own way. But um, I, I have to say now that I'm, I, it's made it so easy. Believe me, trying to get a 24 track that sounds great even, you know, may take some time now because, uh, tuning it up how many people really know how to align a machine how to tweak it you know how to under bias it to get a better right. top it, it, there's all there's great stories of mutt laying i heard that i've never worked with him but um i heard he would go in the studio before a project and listen to tape literally record on blank tape and listen to what was coming back off the repro head and he would pick reels of tape and make decisions <laughs> before he even started recording. I was like, yeah, that's that's a story. That's <laughs> right. So, but uh, yeah, no, and sometimes the convenience thing too. Look, I've been on sessions where you know the twenty-four track, not at Capitol necessarily, but at another studio, wasn't functioning right, and all of a sudden the session's crashing because we have this technological mm. nightmare you know, early technological nightmare. And I had that happen. It's funny, I did, I was called in by Patty Larson, um, who was a very famous uh, classical producer for Angel Records. And she was doing a record for an avant-garde avant artist named Daniel Lentz. And we got this system that was very early in digital called Soundstream. And it used Bell and Howell data huh. recorders. And we got there, we had the LA Philharmonic with him and his entourage, and the system failed. And here Patty's, of course, freaking because once you book a session and you have an orchestra there or a small chamber, more than a chamber, but orchestra. But, um, you know, I actually ended up dragging in uh, what I thought would be best for it that we had at that time. And that was a 3M 5616 track to cut the record on. And that's what I did Daniel's wow. record on. And, uh, but yeah, there's, uh, you know, so there's all those type of uh, things that happen too. And on both sides of the coin, early digital failing versus, you know, 24 tracks in other places, not giving you back what you want. And even more so now that, um, it used to be we accepted what we heard on playback. Nowadays, <clears throat> Pro Tools makes it very apparent that what you put in is what you're going to get back. And uh, it wasn't always that way. Sometimes it might be more pleasant on the backside. Sometimes it would sure. be. But, uh, you know. Anyway, so, yeah, there, there's my takes on all of that, you know, technology and, and, and such with it. But it's here to stay. It's not going to change. And it does offer the advantage, like I was saying, you know, which is the blessing and the curse of sending it to someone you really admire or someone you're hearing on this track that you really want, but for whatever reason, you can't bring them here. Yeah. And uh, 
So, th so those type of things are irreplaceable as well. You know, the perfect world for it is most likely gone, you know, in, in a lot of environments, but, uh, or what I grew up with being the perfect world, you know, as playing, but, um, that doesn't mean it's not there still. It just, uh, you know, it just doesn't get to happen as frequently. I, I am curious though, um, especially with Lenice having been working with a, a, a band who's been doing completely analog going from uh, two inch mixing to half inch mastering from half inch to half inch and then getting it cut to, to vinyl. If, if you had the opportunity to uh, go into studio with a well-maintained studio or Ampex machine, call it a, a Neve board, uh, outboard to your heart's content and a well-rehearsed band. That's been the last 35, 40 years <laughs> of my life. <laughs> it wasn't until the first thing I really did with Pro Tools. Uh, early on, I helped Al Schmidt on a Robbie mm -hmm. Williams record, Swing While You're Winning. And we got the whole thing, big band, analog. But he wanted to do the vocals digitally. And I can literally remember saying to myself, this must have been late 90s even, and uh, mid to late right. 90s. When they were comping the vocal, I said, don't you listen? He's like, no, I just look at it. I make my edits. I was like, you're kidding me, really? You don't listen to your edits? <laughs> but it, it's, it's become that kind of world with it. But yeah, no, I... That's basically all I did for the longest time. We've I've had nothing but great studios, nothing but great ATR machines to mix to, and went to vinyl forever and learned the rules of vinyl. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite things was on some punk records to actually uh, go screen into the cutter head on the uh, outgoing groove on the lead out. And the cutter head will actually pick up faint analog or acoustic signals. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, you know, but yeah, vinyl, vinyl's an art and knowing how to cut to it and how to mix for it is a little bit different. You know, it's a very, people don't realize, you know, it opens up okay at the first cut, by the time you're at the last cut on the heading on the way out, you know, 5Ks may be your top that you have. Sure. And uh, people, you know, your ear adjusts over the playback of the record that you don't perceive that, but, um, or at least I don't perceive mm -hmm. it. You know, but um, I, I nobody really perceives it because it's so gradual. But it, working with vinyl is different. You know, like I remember staying up at like four in the morning when I was going to master at six to put in fresh bias noise tape in between the as a spread in between cuts, so you didn't hear it go to paper leader and go silent. But there was this slight analog hiss in the background, and you couldn't do it too early on because it would print right. through you know, in the uh, sort of like, you know, people used to laugh about the Beatles rec records or this and that, but that printer was because, you know, it sat there for X amount of time, you know, and the one layer influenced mm -hmm. the other, you know, on the tape before it was mastered. But yeah, no, I've, gosh, and having great outboard gear, we've always had, and I'm a gear slut, you know, I love collecting mics and analog gear and tube gear and you know, I think Yvonne is really making some great stuff right now, you know, at, at Manly, and they do everything yeah. from the ground up. You know, it's really, 
from making their own transformers. My friend Ian Sefchuk is doing that with uh, Magic Death Eye. You know, he's winding his own transformers. And, you know, it's there is an art to doing it as opposed to, and the learning process as opposed to buying it off right. the shelf. And uh, that's great to see. I love uh, I love that part of it too. I love building and fixing and messing around and modifying. And, you know, I was a bit of a techie, you know, so I was always in there tweaking and doing this and that. And, you know, it, it, it followed me through my career as far as modifying this or, hey, what about if we take that in 990 and we lift up, uh, lift up that pen and put a capacitor there and do, you know, and clean that a little harder there. What would happen? Or what if we do this? Or, you know, what if we bias the tubes a little differently? What's going to happen here with that pull tag? Right. So it's a, it's always fun to explore those realms too. You don't get to do that so much anymore, but I certainly have had like, oh no, that pull tech we won't use on a vocal, but we'll use that one over there because I know that one has something's weird with it, you know, in the bottom, and I don't want to get into it right now. I, a lot, I'll be in a room a lot of times with a rack of 1176s or LA two ways, and I'll ask the assistant, you know, I'll sit back and, okay, patch through that one. Okay, patch through the next one. Let me hear through the next one. You know, let me, oh, that's the one. I like that. Go back, you know. Ooh. So there's those type of things too, where you need to, you know, I've had the fortune to explore my outboard right. gear. Gear slit so to, to gear slit. I'm glad you brought and, um, up 1176s. I, yeah. I'm, I'm curious, yeah. are you are you one to be more of a fan of blue stripes or black faces? Well, the early black faces are good. I actually own two. Somebody commented on it the other day. I put a picture on my Facebook page, my only social media, my age there. But I have two uh, Rev1 Blue Stripes, which I love for guitar. I mean, there's nothing for a lot of things, actually, not just guitar. But that particular unit has a sound to it that it's it's a gift of the gods, of the analog gods. The early 1176s, the Blackfaces too, sound great. Some are a little funky, but for the most part, they're, they're great. I'm a fan of LA3As. A big fan of LA two ways, obviously Fairchilds. We have several at the studio. Six sixties so. and six seventies. Always, we have one six sixty and two six right. seventies. And uh, but you know, I'm I'm always like patch through this. Okay, let me hear that. Now try the other channel. Okay, it, it's a good having a good assistant. Of course, is is a blessing and someone who's helping you so you can sit back and absorb and not. Um, not think about the wiring you know let me hear that okay great because you know you get so wrapped up i and we all did as kids you know into patching into everything and doing this that you kind of forget right. to listen you know you're so absorbed with the patch bay and the outboard and this and that that you know it, the listening experience sometimes goes by you i mean now i know the yeah. sound i want so i get to pick the cream of the crop box but and a lot of times, I have to say, in, in too, in, in that, that um, you learn a lot and you may stumble upon something amazing, mm -hmm. you know. But, uh, yeah, no, it's um, it's nice to be able, and that's having a good assistant so that you drive. I'm going to, um, I want to sit back and listen, or I need to think here. I need to take this person through a process. So 
you uh, you handle this. You know, I've had some great people with me over the years and trained a lot of great people and learned a lot from people when I was in that chair. And uh, it's a uh, it's a blessing to have that. But um, I, I I've grown up. You know, Capitol Studios will spoil you really fast. No no doubt about well, it. Well, I mean, every every engineer I know who who actually. Uh, gives two craps about about the uh, about the big recording houses of the 20th century capital included will always uh, drool over not only the outboard of Capitol Studios and, and how well maintained each room is but also those reverb tanks the reverb chambers are great you know I had the opportunity to rebuild the electronics which are still going in 84 when I first started there and uh, at that time, since the chambers are underground, there was a moisture problem. And a mm. lot of Langevin equipment was down there, like AM10s and mic preset. You know, the circuit boards were so tight, they were just literally rotting and molding. We since corrected that where the electronics went, but the, the chamber doors still have little triggers on them that flag lights. And before we rebalance the air down there, they used to open the chambers up and pull a bucket of water out of a humidifier every day. But yeah, the chambers are amazing. I'm there's some great emulations out there and stuff right now, but there's nothing like the real the real deal. And I, I feel that way with plates too, although I do think the UA140 plate's a pretty amazing uh, plate. So uh, sometimes the ease of that makes it better. But a great 140 plate and a great chamber and you know, even a great spring reverb. I uh, had a BX10 that I've used on tons of stuff over the years. That is a phenomenal sounding reverb, and uh, for certain things, you know, you can't. Uh, but but it's not like a, a Fender Twin spring, you know, a little Hammond spring or something like that. It's a whole different right. animal. It's funny though that you mentioned springs. I I have a few friends that have built rack mount spring units out of spring reverb tanks that were supposed to be Fender or Polytone. They just would build right, these sure. reverb tanks. They were interesting. It was funny. Somebody did a really interesting effect on a parallel kick drum channel with a ton of spring reverb on it. And it made no sense at first, but then blending it in with everything else was very interesting and rather subtle when it was blended. But you do a lot of interesting things with spring oh, reverb. Oh, yeah. That's the other... <laughs> The gift of blending in general is totally the thing. But yeah, no, it's, um, I've seen giant, you know, Fairchild oil dampened spring reverbs in my okay. life that were way cool. Sometimes I thought, no, that's just wrong. <laughs> but, you know, whatever it takes to, you know, to get the sound, i not at all afraid of it, you know, like, and like you said, blending and really, the, the other thing that really you grow with in this business, like any part of this business or probably any business period is, you know, your experience to know where to put things and how to place them and to try new things, but to kind of go for your, your basic thing and then open it up from there. You, for me, one of the greatest gifts was learning to forget the console and everything else right. and just listen. And, and because the stuff was so overwhelming, not I knew how it all worked. It wasn't overwhelming in that sense, but this temptation to keep when really 
let go of the temptation to keep doing that and mm-hmm. listen. Remove yourself from the physical and go into the mental and listen. It, it is really a good lesson. I mean, maybe that's not happening with the box, or maybe it is because there's 10 million plugins. Right. Now. You know, like, oh, I'll do this and that'll fix it, but this will fix it. But if I just sit back and listen to what this project needs, what this song needs, where this needs to go, you know, what, what, what are they hearing that I need to get mm-hmm. into? Right. You know, those are all, they're, they're lessons, you know, and uh, we, we forget our lessons, but I think, you know, as time goes on, we, we, we stick to them a little stronger and, uh, you know, it's important, you know, it's important to really remove yourself from the technical environment or the physical environment and get into the mental, you know, the, the soul sensing, you know, environment right. there. At least for me, that's been my experience with that over the years. I had one, I, I, I won't, uh, very, very famous record. We did the first, um, and uh, I was the lead assistant for Al Schmidt on it. Huge, big band record. And um, Pete Dell, one of my best friends, was with me on that, you know, riding shotgun. So it was the three of us. Second volume that Phil Ramone was producing, we came in and Al was late for his uh, flight changes. He was flying in from Montreux from the jazz festival. And so I had to kick it off. So I did everything and did all the recall, matched everything technically perfect and did all this. And then Al got there, you know, and he did it and he just barely touched anything. And then Pete looked at me and goes, what you did was awesome but the 10% Al put on there just made it perfect. And I have to admit, I was so pissed. <laughs> you, you don't know how hard I've worked to make this happen and do this, but he was right because it took me a while to get what he was saying, you know, or interpret it. But uh, you were so focused on making it perfect that you didn't hear right here where and it, it's true. That was a, one of the greatest lessons I ever had in retrospect of my career recording. Um, you know, it's like I was so obsessed at this point, and it was great. There was no doubt it was great. But where am I missing the magic? And that's, you know, he was right. This was a really interesting conversation to have for a few reasons. One, I always love talking to Bay Area people, and Christina grew up in the East Bay, so a lot of hometown love. But on a realer level, this was very interesting to get the perspective of someone who has worked on so much different material and has done so many really interesting things within the recording industry. I mean, think about it. Christina has been able to jump from jazz to Latin to hip-hop and back over again. Some of my favorite records of hers are in the hip-hop space, especially some of the Hammer records she's done. And yet, 
her two Grammy wins are both jazz albums. I think it's also a really good point that Christina made when it comes to listening. She, like me, is a huge gear slut. She said so herself. And while it's fun to talk and look and play with all the gear, really have to be understanding of what's coming out of the speakers and what you hear. Because at the end of the day, this is audio, and we have to hear it. So it doesn't matter if you put a $30 million signal chain on your song. It matters that it sounds good. Christina, thank you so much for being on the show. It was a total blast, and I know you don't give interviews often, so it was a real privilege for me to be able to talk to you. For all of you listening, if you want to go find Christina, look her up. She's everywhere. You can find her on Discogs, on Wikipedia, and frankly, uh, probably on the back of any number of albums that you have in your collection. She has worked on a hell of a lot of material. This is Gear Talk, and I want to continue on a point of conversation that Christina and I had earlier in our conversation, which is probably the most important piece of gear in any recording studio. You have it all the time. You know what it is. You're probably a little bit confused. Well, what is it, D3? Is it my mics, my my speakers, my computer? my my pair of headphones that I'm listening to this podcast on? No, no. It's a little bit closer to you than that even. No, I'm talking about your ears. Now, I'm a gear slut. Christina's a gear slut. Many of my guests have been huge gear sluts, either in their past or up to this day. But I think what we often forget is that our ears are probably the most important piece of audio equipment we have. In fact, I can say that they are the most important piece of audio equipment we have. Let's take a step back and think about this for a second. We are making music to please people's ears. We're using audio, something that our ears process and perceive to share a story or emotion with an audience. So if we forget about our ears in the studio or in the mix room or in the mastering room, wherever we are, then what's the point? Sure, you could have a $20,000 set of studio monitors. You could have a million-dollar room that's treated in $5 million of acoustics and design, but at the end of the day, what's all that worth if your ears aren't trained properly? 
ear training is a big thing, and it doesn't necessarily take that much, but it takes understanding what you like. And for someone like Christina, this is actually very interesting because her discography is so huge that her ear has been trained for so many different things. Now, I have an exercise for all of you. Pick a record that you wouldn't normally listen to. Something you are sort of familiar with, you know, the artist, you maybe heard a couple of songs off of it, and just familiarize yourself with it. Doesn't have to be a record completely out of your comfort zone. I'm not saying if you like jazz, go put on a mumble rap album, no. But familiarize yourself with different styles of jazz, different subgenres, different sounds, different artists, people you may already know but haven't really taken a deep dive in, and really listen. Hell, maybe there's a record you love and you haven't done a deep listen of in a while, if ever. I know a favorite thing I like doing is putting on something like Bitches Brew by Miles Davis or even Manchild by Herbie Hancock and taking really deep listens. I find every time I listen to those albums that there's a different sound that I hear. And it's not necessarily that I'm perceiving new things, but I'm perceiving new feelings with it. For you, this might be a rock album, or maybe you're a Miles fan like me, but instead of Bitches Brew, it's kind of blue. Hell, maybe you like both Miles Davis and rock albums, and you're going to go for some of his 70s music, or even Miles Smiles, or something from that era. Whatever the music you choose to deep listen really take a deep dive into it and get some understanding of the feeling of the music. Then, once you get back into the studio and start listening to your own music or the music of a client or the music of a collaborator, you'll find you'll have a better understanding of how to listen to that music and how to work on it. Just some food for thought. This is music from Blue Girl, and today I'm going to showcase a relatively unfinished song of mine that I'm in the process of doing. This one is a bit of a follow-up to another electronic piece that I showcased a few weeks ago. And I'm trying to do this song in a similar fashion to that last one, but I want to make it different enough that it stands out. Now, I want to get your guys' opinion on this. What do you think of this electronic production? What live instruments do you think I should add to it, if any? And what sounds might be cool that might be more in the box? Let me know. Tag us on Instagram and Twitter, at ready to record or even better, send us an email, r2r.bluegirl at gmail.com. Again, that's r2r 
www.bluegirl at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to hear your opinions on this track and see what you guys would change or add. So without further ado, here is an unnamed electronic piece that I've been working on in the new year. That's the show, everyone. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed talking to all of you. Special major big thank you to Miss Christina Picari for being on the show. It was such a privilege to have you on, and I am just so glad we get to share our conversation with all the listeners. To all the listeners out there, make sure you get some good ear training in. I know it helped me a whole lot, and as much as I love the gear, it's not all about the gear. I think we've gone over that before, but you know, it's good to repeat it. Find yourself an album and really get to work with it and your music will be 10 times better. Trust me. I know. Tune in next time. We're going to have the legendary producer and engineer, Mr. Shelly Yakis, on the program. We're going to talk about everything from how he grew up in a recording studio, Ace Recorders in Boston, all the way to his current setup now with... It's just a crazy story, man. It It's such a good conversation, and I can't wait to share it with all of you. As always, there will be more gear to geek out on and more music to share. But for now, this is Daniel, the D3 Cohen, signing off from Blue Girl Productions, worldwide headquarters and studios right here in San Francisco, California. We're ready to record. <laughs>